Well, it was somewhere between the years of 1730 and 1740, our country experienced its first ever Christian revival. It's known as the First Great Awakening. And during that time, the American colonies held about 1.5 million people. And only 17% of those folks attended a church. Now, to me, that was shocking. There's been this myth in our country for quite a while that everybody during that time period was involved in following Jesus. And that's just not the case. And so this first great awakening was started in Europe, traveled over to the colonies. Most notably, maybe Massachusetts was the area that it really began to dig in. But this awakening was a direct response to a season called the Enlightenment. You may be familiar with that terminology. The Enlightenment was a time in our country and kind of throughout other parts of the world where religion was challenged by science and reason. And so what happened is that the colonies were lit ablaze with philosophical battles and with lax Christianity. Now here's why. Is that during the time of this period, the churches had something that was called the halfway covenant. This was their way of being seeker driven or seeker sensitive. The idea was that if you were a family that was a bunch of non-believers, you weren't there with Jesus yet, or you were spiritually apathetic, the halfway covenant said, that's okay. You can be secure in your relationship with God. Jesus is happy with halfway. You don't have to go all the way in. And by the way, if you're ever part of a church that offers a halfway covenant, just turn around and go the other way, right? That is not a great idea. And so the first great awakening was sparked through many people. Two of them was the challenging teaching of Jonathan Edwards and the traveling ministry of a man called Charles Whitefield. And so during that time, 40,000 people gave their life to Jesus as their Lord and Savior. For 1.5 million people, that's a pretty large amount. The Methodist movement was born. There were 6,000 hymns written at that time. There was ministry to widows and orphans that began to flourish for the first time. And there was a seminary that was started, which today is known as Princeton University. But the first great awakening wasn't the only revival our country ever experienced. There was the second great awakening. There was the third great awakening. There was the Azuzu Street Revival, which we'll talk about in a few weeks. There's the 20th century revivals from the Billy Graham Crusades and the Jesus Revolution. And so many times you would find these revivals in these large tents outdoor because more people than they ever planned for end up arriving. And so during these revivals, there was something that was in common with all of them, is that during the revivals, these were times where God's pace, his speed seemed to quicken, empowering multitudes of people to become aware of the presence of God and to experience that presence in a personal and a powerful way. But before we go any further, what I need you to hear me say, and you need to understand this for the rest of this series, as we're talking about revival, revival is not something that is planned by human beings. It is only sparked by God. And so to my brothers and sisters in the more Southern states, you know, the tent revival you're planning at 7 p.m. is fantastic. God can bring revival from that. But for us to say revival is going to happen at this time in our tent, in this field, that's just not how it works. Human beings don't plan revival. Only God can spark it. Only God can make it happen. So I just want you to imagine this for a moment. 
that this were to happen in our community. That hundreds, thousands of people begin to experience the speed of God's movement, quickening. We're all aware of his presence. We're all experiencing a personal and a profound way. If that were to happen, for all of you students in here, I guarantee you, you'd go to school every day, three new people give their life to Jesus. You go to work, another manager is healed. You walk around your neighborhood, another marriage is restored. Every corner you turn, prodigals are coming home. The lost are found and lives are changed. And what's happening to the people that are part of this revival, they can no longer doubt it, they can't deny it, they can't ignore it, that Jesus is real and Jesus is on the move. That's revival and we need it right now more than ever. There's no doubt about that. Look at these stats behind me. If you take the first great awakening, the second great awakening, and everyone who came to faith through the Billy Graham crusade experiences that he had, you took all those people's about 38 million. But if you take all the American adults who have walked away from Jesus since 1993, it's 40 million. It's even more than all the progress gained from those three things have been lost since 1993. That's a lot of people, not just saying, I'm really just not that interested in Jesus, but completely walking away. I'm done, I want nothing to do with that. That's a lot of people. I was watching the movie, Jesus Revolution. Do you guys, anybody ever seen that? This is a story about a revival that broke out in Southern California, late 60s, early 70s. It actually ended up leading to the vineyard movement, which we were planted from. So as you watch that movie, just know these are the beginnings of North Star and where we came from as a church. But as I'm watching that movie, there's two things I'm thinking the entire time through. One I'm thinking is how fun would this be? Like I know there's challenges, there's things to go through during revival that are incredibly difficult that I can't even understand, but I'm thinking, Lord, this would be a blast. I just wanna have fun. I wanna be part of something like this. But the second thing I was thinking the whole time, we just said it, is just how badly our country needs this right now. How desperate we are for this kind of move of God. And so what I've done is I've got a notebook. And in that notebook, I've got a lot of names I've written down. I've got street names, I've got communities, I've got countries. And so what I do every day is I just pray one word over all those names. I mean, it takes me maybe two or three minutes. And that one word is revival. So I pray over Fox Chase, Fox Meadow, Glen Lake, Claiborne, Pheasant Hills, Miami Trails, Bellamy, revival, 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 revival. And I pray it every day. And the reason why I do, and I may be wrong, but what I believe is that the most important thing that we can be asking God for right now is revival. It's the most important thing that we can be asking him for. And I'll tell you what, what convinced me the most of this, it's not the stats we just looked at, but instead it is a single verse from an obscure prophet in the Old Testament. And I wanna read that verse to you today. I want us to go over it. I want us to dig in deep to what that verse means because to me, it's the most convincing verse in the Bible of why that's the most important thing we should be asking God for right now. So let me pray and we're gonna look at that verse. So Father, we just thank you. We thank you for what you're already doing. We're asking for more. We're asking for more, Lord, that you would come in, move our hearts, move our lives today. 
I pray, Jesus, if there's anything from my own motives, my own agenda, my own flesh that's not of you, would you just get rid of it, Lord? We want to hear from you and you alone. And just to join in on what Cody was praying, Lord, would you show us what are you doing? You haven't left the Middle East. You haven't left Jerusalem. You haven't left Israel. You are there and you are on the move. But Father, we are confused right now. We're hurting. And so Jesus, would you just show us Are there prophetic things unraveling? Are there days ahead? Lord, let us be constantly in your step as we pray for what is happening in that situation. Let us be aware of what you're doing. And it's in your name we pray, amen. (laughs) Well, in our reading plan, if you're on it, and if you're not, just jump, uh, you can grab a journal right outside those two wooden doors. At the end of the month, we're going to be starting into what's called the Book of the Twelve. Now, if you've never heard the Book of the Twelve in the Bible, it's all the minor prophets. And by the way, they're not called minor because of their importance. This is very elementary, but they're minor just because of the length of their letters. Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Daniel, those are long, big books, a lot of pages to go through. We're in Ezekiel right now. You know it is a long, long book. But the minor prophets are actually all very short. But the minor prophets, the thing they had in common was that the aim of their letters was all pointing the same way. And their aim was to spark revival among these just spiritually spiraling nations of both Israel and Judah. And so today we're going to look at Amos, who is one of those minor prophets. Now, by the world standards, Amos was as disqualified as they would come when it comes to the thing that God is calling him to do. Now, you'll see behind me on the map, Israel that time was split into two nations because of conflict they had with one another. On the north, you have Israel. They kept the name. Down south, you have Judah. Now, Amos was from the kingdom of Judah, really a small town, kind of a know-nothing town. And what God calls him to do is I want you to go to Israel, strangers in a strange land, and you're going to preach this message. Now, the reason why this is so hard to believe is that Amos is not from a royal court. He's not from a priestly family. He has no training as a prophet. In fact, he's a lowly peasant. He's a farmer who is working with flocks and with sycamore fig trees. It actually tells us exactly what he's doing. And so I would think, like, I'm going, all right, God, if I'm you, and I'm strategizing, I'm thinking, Amos, you have no resume, no experience, no training. I'm going to send you to your own people, to your neighbors, because they at least know who you are. Like they may say, hey, he's a man of integrity. Let's give him a listen. I know he has no training. I know he has no background. I know he's just a peasant, but let's at least give him a second to hear him out. But instead, God says, nope, I'm sending you to people who have no idea who you are. And so that's what happens. Amos is sent to Israel, who, by the way, is in a time of incredible prosperity. Like as a nation, like the money is just flowing. Things are going well. Political security, but they are smug spiritually. And so if I could define Israel at that time, their thinking was we really don't need God because we're in days of abundance. And as I say that out loud, I realize there's some of that in my own heart. Like when I'm in days of abundance, it is so hard to pray, to depend, and to seek after the Lord. It is, it is hard. It is difficult. And that's where Israel is at. 
And so the aim of Amos' ministry was not to educate just a few minds in Israel, but instead to ignite every heart in Israel to turn back to God and to spark revival. And his attempt came with some of the most harsh and colorful words that you will find in the entire Bible. In fact, if you find more harsh, colorful words than this, all right, text me them today. I'd love to compare notes. If Amos had a Twitter account, these would be his most popular tweets. Here we go. Amos chapter four, verse one. He says, hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria, you women who oppress the poor, you crush the needy, and you say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. <laughs> now, some of you ladies may be blushing right now because you're thinking to yourself, I said those exact words to my husband the other <laughs> night, and that's okay if you did. Because really what Amos is doing here, he's not picking on women and their physical appearance. What he's saying is that you are so stuffed with sin. It is time for slaughter. It is time for the slaughter. The judgment is on its way. Then we look at Amos chapter five, verse 21. He says, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. There's actually some people who look at this verse and think that God does not like what we're doing right now. He doesn't want us to gather. He doesn't want assemblies. He doesn't want festivals. But what Amos is really saying here is, I don't care if you gather. I just don't want the hypocrisy because you're singing what a beautiful name on Sunday and then you're cursing your coworker on Monday. That's what I don't want. You can gather, but the hypocrisy has to go. Amos 6.6 6 says, you drink wine by the bowlful and use the finest lotions, but you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph, your own nation, Israel. He's not saying start drinking with a cup or get nicer lotions. What he's saying here is why doesn't your heart grieve for the spiritual condition of your country? And boy, I felt that one, right? Typing that in. David, why doesn't your heart grieve for the spiritual condition of our country? I love our country. I'm not slamming America. I'm just looking at the stats and there's not a lot of people who are radically pursuing Jesus as much as they were 30, 40, 50 years ago. Why doesn't that grieve me? That's the question I think he's asking. Amos 7, 17, your wife will become a prostitute in the city and your sons and daughters will fall by the sword. In other words, if you don't repent, return to God and change your ways, you will be conquered by a foreign power and carried into exile. And that's exactly what happens. Now, the people that come in and conquer Israel eventually are the Assyrians. Now, in Amos, he never says the word Assyria, but if you're kind of a Bible nerd, go look at Amos chapter four, verse two. Because what does it say there? Is that there is gonna be somebody and they're gonna use fish hooks to carry you away. There's only one group that uses fish hooks and it's the Assyrians. And they would hook you in your lip, they'd hook you in your nose and they would attach the cords or the rope and they would carry you away. That's what the Assyrians would do. And guess what? 35 years later, after Amos prophesied this, because of a lack of repentance, a lack of changing, the Assyrians came in with their fish hooks and they carried the Israelites away. And it's painful to read Amos chapter 9. The first half of that chapter is Amos describing what that destruction is going to be like. And it's not easy to read. 
But then you get to the second half of Amos chapter nine, the last chapter of the entire book. And it turns. And all of a sudden, the Lord is laying out what the restoration is going to look like. Because after the exile, eventually a day of redemption and restoration is going to happen. And it's in these passages of hope we find our one single verse that, in my opinion, says everything we need to know about revival. Here it is. Amos chapter 9, verse 13. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper, who's the collector of the grain, will be overtaken by the plowman, who's the planter of the grain. And the planter of the grapevines will be overtaken by the one treading the grapes, which is the one that comes on after the grapes have been grown, you step on them. And the process of stepping on the grapes is beginning to make it into wine, letting the juice flow out from the grapes. Let me read it again. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. Isn't it so amazing what we're gonna find here is that one single verse in the Bible can pack so much in just a handful of words. And so here's what I want us to do. I want us for the next two to three minutes to just study this verse on the screen. You're gonna read it to yourself, you're gonna meditate, you're gonna pray, whatever you need to do. And the question I want you to ask yourself during those two to three minutes is this, why should this verse fill us with hope? And the clue is just to ask yourself, what does it mean if the reaper of the grain is overtaken by the plowman? What is, it's almost a riddle. What does that mean? And so take two to three minutes on your own and just ask yourself, why should this verse fill me with hope? And then I'll jump back up. So 
Here's what, here's what I want you to do. I want you to imagine we are just in a pathway group in somebody's really large living room. And I would love to hear what you guys think. Now, it'd be great if you raised a hand before you shouted something out so I can just see who you are. Yes? For me, it's the Oh, praise God. Thank you. So a testimony. I can't see the oh it's Ethan. Gotcha. Uh basically like then God's just gonna overwhelm us with like so much that like well our problems before are gonna be like drowned out by like the amount of like just like so Ethan's saying it's gonna be an overwhelming amount that you um Something we can't count, we can't contain. It's just really uncontainable. Yeah. Anybody else? There's so many hands up. I can't see with the lights. Sorry, I just can't. Yes, Megan. The, the people that are oppressed will find freedom. The last will be first. Great. Actually, do you, I saw this. But. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Gotcha. So Ashley's talking about the plowman now has the opportunity to lay out as much seed to be planted. Again, that overwhelming. I saw one more hand. Yeah, Don. Okay. Acceleration. Great, Cody. Gotcha. Do you just want to come up and finish the talk, Cody? I mean, or just, it's great. Yes. Again, Annette can't even contain it. I think Cody cheated. No. Here's, here's what I got. So, again, I'm not, this is just my commentary, right? So, I don't, who's right, who's wrong? But here's what I got. I think what Amos is saying is despite the sin of Israel, there is coming a time where the overflowing of God's fruitfulness is gonna be so great that the reaper is actually gonna still be collecting the grain, this grain of abundance when the next season of plowing begins. Because what happens, and some of you alluded to this, is that the reaper and the plowman, they never overlap. And so you're planting in one season, knowing that the person coming to collect the harvest, they're seasons away. They don't overlap. And that's the miraculous movement of what's happening right here. They never overlap, but they are here because the harvest is so great that it's actually gonna overflow into the next cycle of plowing. Now, when it comes to the grapes, Don, what you said, there seemed to be an acceleration there. There seems to be a, a kind of a communication about time because what you've got is that the planting of the grapevines and the treading of the grapes, the time in between is going to be condensed. In fact, it's going to become nothing where the planting is overflowing with the harvest. And so what that means is simultaneously, the moment I put the seeds in, there comes the grapes. It's time for treading. There's literally no longer a time in between. So if you take those two thoughts and you summarize them, here's what I think Amos is saying. I think he's saying that revival is a season of time 
where the overflow of God is going to be so great, but also so swift that yes, the plowman and the reaper are finally going to meet. And in this holy overlap of the planter and the reaper, as you guys alluded to, the harvest is going to be uncontainable. Like you can't just fill a truck bed. You can't just fill a basket. You can't contain it in your hands. It's going to be uncontainable. Can you imagine planting seeds and two seconds later, it's time to harvest. It's the idea that there will be absolutely no time. It'll be so great. It'll be so swift. The plowman and the reaper finally meet. That's revival. Now, how do we get that? Wouldn't it be great if I said, okay, open up your Bibles now to page 2,233, and there it was, the three-step plan for revival. But we don't find it in a clear, concise plan. Now, what we do have are there are people for a living that research revivals. And the most fascinating feedback I found is that they say that every revival that's ever taken place on our planet, America and beyond, there is always five common ingredients to every revival. And I think this is worth talking about. I'm not saying this is in the Bible. I'm not saying necessarily there's a list there, but boy, this makes sense. Here they are. Number one is humble prayer. Number two is repentance, which is confessing, turning from our sin back to God. <clears throat> number three, worship. Number four, testimony. And number three, scripture. Now here's the thing that fascinates me. All of these components are kind of a challenge to bring. It's hard to repent. It's hard to read the scriptures. Some of these things are not easy at all, but they're all accessible right now. Each and every one of us, we have them at our fingertips. You don't have to go to another country. You don't have to go to another place. Everything we need for revival, we have it right now. It's all accessible. This past year, there was a revival in Asbury, Kentucky. Some people called it an outpouring. Some people call it a renewal. We won't know until time continues and the fruits in front of us. But Asbury, Kentucky, at their university, they've had multiple revivals over the years. And I wanna read to you just two kind of official summaries of what happened in 1950 and 1970 over there. And as you listen, notice all five of these ingredients are present. Here we go, February 1950. From one student testimony, it led to repentance, victories, and more testimonies. This actually went uninterrupted for 118 hours and became the second leading news story nationwide. Listen to this. From that one testimony, it is estimated that 50,000 people found a new experience in Christ as a result of this revival and witness teams that went out from it. Now, fast forward 20 years later, 1970, still in February, Dean Custer B. Reynolds, scheduled to speak in chapel, gosh, imagine this moment. He's got his talk planned. He's worked all week on it, ready to speak it, but instead he feels something from the Lord. He puts it to the side and he felt led to invite per, uh, people to come up and give testimonies instead. Many on campus have been praying for spiritual renewal and they were in an expectant mood. Soon there was a large group waiting in line to speak that day. A spirit of powerful revival came upon the congregation. The chapel was filled with worshiping people. Classes were canceled for a week during the 144 hours of unbroken revival. But even after classes resumed, 
on February 10th, Hughes Auditorium was left open for scripture reading, for prayer, and for testimony. Some 2,000 witness, not witnesses, but witness teams went out from Wilmore to churches in at least 130 college campuses around the nation. All five ingredients. And so as we read stories like that, what I want to make sure as a church we remember, remember, remember that every one of those ingredients are accessible to us right now. George Otis, who's a seasoned researcher of revival, he would agree with this. And he says this, a simple common denominator in every revival is a small consensus of people who are radically committed to doing one thing, and that is seeing revival come. And so let me just ask, in case the Lord is pressing in on any of your hearts right now, is there anybody in here today who would be willing to be part of a small consensus of people who are radically committed to exercising these ingredients of revival? And if you are, okay, we got one. Ginger's ready. Yes, don't laugh. Amen. Thank you, Ginger. And so, so Ginger, there's my phone number up there. So if you guys can text me and say, just put your name there. I'm going to send you just kind of a quick list of next steps of how you can join in. Because right now at our church, we have a tiny group of people committed to this. And we need help. I'm just going to be honest. Like, we're... We're tired and we need reinforcements. And so if you at all feeling that movement in your heart, and you can find my, my numbers on uh, the webpage, and I'm gonna be most likely in an airport for a long time the next couple of days. So I will get back to you like in the next 48 hours. If that's a movement in your heart, just text me. I'm gonna send you back some easy next steps. And we're going to start doing this together. We're going to be this consensus of people radically committed to just exercising these simple ingredients of revival. And so as we close here, let me just remind us again, we cannot create revival. Cody and I could go run over there, grab some of our tents, put them out in the parking lot, and some good stuff may happen. But we can't say, hey, 7 p.m. tonight in the parking lot, revival is going to happen. It might. But what we have to keep in mind, only God can ignite it. Only God can serve, but what we can do is we can be intentional as a church to mixing these ingredients of revival into our world, into our schools, into our workplaces, into our communities. He's gonna spark it, he's gonna ignite it. Our job is to mix the ingredients, he's gonna bake the cake. Revival is messy and is a very selfless pursuit because revival isn't the movement of multitudes becoming more like us. It's the movement of multitudes becoming more like Jesus. It's all about Jesus. We're not chasing, quote, revival. We're chasing him, and maybe revival will come. It's all about Jesus. Experience him in a deeper, more intimate, powerful way. That's why I believe there is nothing more important that we can be asking God for than real revival. It's all about Jesus, all about the overflow of heaven on earth, the reaper overtaken by the plow. And so I'm gonna invite the worship team up and we're gonna close with just a, a quick exercise. And in this exercise, I'm gonna ask you to take about five minutes just to rest and to receive. And, and to do so, maybe, maybe we'll start 
just close your eyes. No one's going to come tap you on the shoulder or do anything weird. But at the best that you can, just sit back and rest for a few moments. And what we're going to do is a little bit of a meditation and prayer exercise. And as your eyes are closed, what we want to do here is ignite hope inside our hearts. Because maybe you're listening right now and you're thinking to yourself, yeah, this is never going to happen. Well, part of why that thought comes is we don't have a picture of what it can be like. And so, Lord, I just ask right now as our eyes are closed, would you help us begin to picture the kind of change that revival would bring to our life? And so maybe just just take a couple deep breaths before we jump in, before we try to start picturing these things. And so for the first one, I want you just to just imagine your mind's eye. What would it look like for a revival to sweep through your family? However you define family. What would it look like for your siblings, your parents, your kids, aunts and uncles? What would it look like at Thanksgiving dinner? What would the conversations be like? What would be the atmosphere of the home if revival just came through? What would the temperature be, Lord? The spiritual, the relational, the emotional, the mental temperature every time we're with family. Now I want you to picture just the hopeful scene of friends, maybe classmates, maybe workmates, just whoever you see on a day-to-day basis, revival sweeping in. What would that look like in your classroom? What would be the conversations like in the hallway? How would people be operating in sports and clubs and activities? At the workplace, what would it be like at the water cooler, in the break room, in those meetings where everybody's at their throats? What would change? Lord, show us that. Give us a picture of hope that revival alone could bring in that time. And then lastly, I want you to try to picture what would revival look like just between you and the Lord in your own heart. There's nothing going on with anybody else, but inside your own heart, there is a quickening, a power, a presence of Jesus that you have never experienced before. And it's not just a quick moment, but it lasts and it's going for a while. How would that change your joy, your anxieties, your time with the Lord through the word, through prayer. And for those of us here today who maybe haven't yet said yes to Jesus as our Lord and Savior, haven't yet made that decision, I believe there's a sort of revival that happens inside our hearts, an explosion of sorts when the Holy Spirit moves in, fills us up. It's called regeneration, but what it is, it's a regeneration of our entire soul from temporal to eternal. And so Father, if there's anyone here today that hasn't yet said yes, but they're ready, it's just a simple invitation. 
Lord Jesus, come into my heart as my Lord and Savior. You died on the cross for my sins. You rose again to offer eternal life. And if that's you, just say, Jesus, I accept that gift right now. Maybe you don't understand it completely, but I receive it. And so as we close, I just wanna pray revival. Father, revival over our church here in Loveland, over there in Westchester. Father, I repent of all the times I've gotten on the ground with that lighter in hand, looking at that fire pit, looking at the wood, the kindling, and trying so hard in my own power to light it. Father, repent, I turn back to you. I hand the lighter over to you. You're the igniter. You're the spark. And so Jesus, I pray your revival would come to our church, our communities, our city, our nation, our world. And it's in your name we pray, amen. I'm gonna have you stand and Rusty's gonna come up. He's gonna move us. We're gonna have a time of the prayer teams and communion. I'll just say it right off. The, um, those who are prepared to be on the prayer team, why don't you come on up front? We'll get going. Let me ask you this. As you were taking a moment there, imagining what it might look like, with a show of hands, how many in this room have um, found themselves in a moment of what might be called awakening or revival, or you've, it's either happened to you or you've been in a space where that's happened. Let me see uh, some hands. Keep them there for a second. Look around everybody, keep the hands up. Maybe one of the responses tonight, today for you is to look at, find one of those people with their hands up right now and say, tell me a testimony. Tell me what that was like. Tell me what that was like. What did it feel like? What did it look like? What did it mean for you? The power of testimony shifts dimensions. Jesus gets all the glory when you start talking about what he did in you or what he did in the space. You know, I've, I've, I've seen a number of moments like that personally and in an entire congregate, in an entire translocal region where things were happening. It is exciting. It is a lot of work. It is everything that you realize you need God for. I remember starting a small group with a, with a guitar in the middle of one of these things. In the end of three weeks, I had 50 people in my living room. And we didn't know hardly what to do. We were having micro churches before I had a name for that. We'd get this service on Sunday morning and there was a sentiment for a number of months. We could not wait to get to church because who knows what was gonna happen. We, could, we never ended on time. We'll end on time today. But we never ended on time because things just went on and on saw tons and tons of people come to know Jesus. Saw people who knew Jesus get free of things that had beset them for so many years. Again, revival's not something you can spark, but we can make ourselves a bunch of dry wood, dry kindling through some of these ingredients that David was talking about. I wanna pray for us too. I want to pray and invite you to come to respond. We're going to respond in the way we always do, what Jesus said. 
whom we're asking to come. He says, remember when you come before the broken bread and the broken body and the blood and appropriate. Take it into yourself. That's what we want revival to do. Revival takes him into us and then he comes out of us to the places around. So maybe taking communion might be a sparking moment for you today as we think forward. Maybe some of you need the the faith, the picture, the the um, of what you might hear in one of these who had their hands up. I would really encourage you to look around and remember who they were, grab them and ask them to tell the story. And maybe there's something thumping, like David was saying, in your heart. And if um, even if it's a small thump, come on up. Let's let's pray and ask the Lord to stir up what He wants. You've got all kinds of needs here. That's what we're praying here for. So, Father, we ask you to come by your Spirit. Holy Spirit, come. Those simple, easy phrases we talk about so often. Come. Come and stir it up in us. We can't do it, Lord, but we want to be, we want to be a kindling. We want to be this dry sticks where the spark from heaven just poof, and it catches it. Would you ignite us for the things? that really matter. God, we pray that you would drop your spirit in an igniting way on Jerusalem today. The place where spiritual revival began, Lord, is in great need. May the picture of desperation, Lord, be something that we see that we need in our own heart, a desperate space. Come, Holy Spirit, we ask in Jesus' name. As we sing this next song, as we worship, I just invite you to come and respond in any way that feels right to you. And I'll come back up in a few seconds and close us down.